Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I have made a number of mistakes in my ministry, and uh, one of the biggest uh, was on a middle school mission trip uh, from St. Louis, Missouri to Loveland, Colorado. The mistake was we stopped at this place with all the 30-plus middle schoolers at this place called Western Sizzlin. It was a steak buffet. Just think about taking 30 middle schoolers to a buffet. Um, what we had learned throughout our ministry, I say we, my wife, didn't know how to like operate at a restaurant, right? They didn't know taxes and tips and all that kind of stuff, or even ordering for themselves. So we kind of like to give them a little freedom. This particular day, it was a mistake. Because they're there at the buffet, and they're, of course, skipping over the salad. They're skipping over the vegetables. They're loading up their plates with chicken fingers and cheese sticks and desserts. And this was day one of the mission trip. Uh, what they did need a lot of was fiber. So I'll let you figure out what the problems were later. But on top of that, there was a free ice cream thing, and they just got so loaded up on sugar. So parking lot in view of the entire restaurant. True story. And now I tell you that uh, because when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to scripture, we oftentimes approach it in the same way that we approach a buffet. We pick out the good bits, say, yep, that's what I want, and we just walk right by the bad bits. Well, today's readings are some of the more difficult bits, we'll say. Our readings today were uh, 1, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then uh, what was our gospel? Luke chapter 16, what's called the parable of the shrewd manager. And I tell you, um, these are such strange and difficult uh, sections of scripture that when I got into work on Monday, no lie, my staff said, so what are you changing the scripture to this week? I didn't pick these for the record. This is part of the overall lectionary series. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to be a coward. Let's do it. Let's tackle them. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to tackle two of the most interesting, possibly the most controversial section of scripture in today's message. And we'll see what God has to say about it. But with that, let's go to God and ask for him to be present here with us. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this chance that we get to come together and worship, whether here in person or online. Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message. And this week of all weeks, I pray that it is your message. Lord, I trust that you will speak, that your Holy Spirit will speak truth. I pray that you move me out of the way. This isn't about me or from me, that this not from my heart, but instead, Lord, it is from the heart of you. We trust in you, Lord. We pray that you will help us to know who you are and help us to know ourselves better. We pray all these things through your son, Jesus, in his name, amen. So our epistle reading and our gospel reading, one of them is an incredibly controversial epistle, right? And then the gospel reading is possibly the most confusing of all the parables. Which one is more concerning? Um, I suppose for you, it depends on two things. One, your level of ambition and also what chromosomes you have, right? Because uh, for some, they're going to look at that epistle reading, go, I don't know. So I'm going to tackle both of them. I want to hit the gospel first because I want to reserve time to go through that epistle. So that gospel reading, again, called the parable of the shrewd manager. Did anybody like immediately understand it on first blush? Raise your hand. If you're like, yep, 
completely got it. Steve, we know you could come up here and preach. Um, in fact, it, so <laughs> here's the thing, though. For the first time, I finally understood what the disciples felt. As Jesus, I'm reading through this parable, and I'm like, did you get it? I didn't, I don't, okay, okay. Let's just skip that one. We'll see if the next one makes more sense. And it does, by the way. Uh, this is actually in the midst of four different parables that Jesus kind of tells in a row. The previous three were super easy to understand. It was the parable of the 99 sheep and the lost one. It was the parable of the lost coin. And then the parable of the prodigal son. All classics, right? And then he goes into this one. Like, eh, this one maybe didn't make your greatest hits, Jesus. Um, so what's going on here? What is the story? I think part of the issue with this parable, and the reason that we have a hard time maybe connecting with it a little bit, there's no good guy, right? You have the rich man, and oftentimes in scripture, especially in parables, rich men, which we'll see in the next parable, aren't usually raised up as like paragons of moral uh, influence. And then this other guy who, he's his manager, his financial assistant, if you will, and he is dishonest. At best, he's shrewd. Let's get into it. So it says that uh, this rich man has this financial assistant, and it says that he finds that this, this manager has squandered his wealth. It's actually the exact same word that's used to describe the wealth of the prodigal son, that he went about squandering the inheritance, right? So same, he, there's a connection there that people hearing this are going, oh, it's the same thing that's going on. And so the, the rich man calls him in and says, hey, what's the deal? You've been, you've been wasting my money. You're going to be fired, bro. And the manager doesn't respond by trying to defend his job. He doesn't respond by trying to win back his job. Instead, he says, I'm going to look out for number one. He says, I need to protect myself so that when I lose this job, I'll have somewhere to go because these hands aren't made for working, right? And so what he does, it's fascinating. He goes to the debtors, the people that owe money to the rich man. He says, hey, how much you, how much you owe my, my master? And they respond with these exorbitant sums. So this shows the wealth of the rich man, right? Because if these are the debtors, these are very exorbitant amounts. And what does he do? He tells him, no, no, oh, quick, quick, scratch that out, put a lower number. And he calls the second guy in, scratch that out, put a lower number. He reduces their debt that is owed to the master. Now, one of three things is happening here, and scholars have kind of wrestled with this a little bit. Um, the first, and perhaps the most obvious, is he's cheating his master. Because his master is now going to receive less money. You know, there, he's given this discount. So that's the first option. The second option that some have put out there is that perhaps he is... Um, He's eliminating the interest that his master is charging, which incidentally, back in Deuteronomy, it says that um, an Israelite shouldn't charge a fellow Israelite any sort of interest. We kind of lose that, uh, that law these days. Like, Dan, Monson, uh, what do you think about interest? That's a good thing, right, from your perspective, mortgage banker over there. If we held on to that law, you'd be like, oh, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Um, so that might be it. Maybe he's eliminating the interest that's there. The third option is that he's eliminating his own commission saying like, I'm gonna lose the job, so obviously uh, I'll, I'll do my master a favor and not receive that money, but that would seem a strange thing to do. On top of that, the discounts he gives, one of them is 20% and the other is a 50% discount, which seems like a lot for a commission and it certainly seems like a lot for interest. So it's probably not the other two options. It seems like what he's doing is he is cheating his master. And in doing so, he's causing two things to happen. One is he's trapping his master, because here's the deal. If you're a rich man and you are loaning out stuff, uh, land most likely to all these people who owe you money, and then they're told by your financial manager, oh no, don't worry, you owe less. 
If you as the rich man come back and say, listen, that discount's null and void, you still owe me the full amount, that's gonna harm your reputation, that's gonna harm your relationship with those debtors. So he has to still honor this discount, right? And on top of that, a positive that may come is perhaps people say, hey, this debtor, he, he reduced our debt, maybe he gets positive response. But the second thing that's happening by giving this discount is that manager, that financial assistant, now has done a solid for these debtors and they owe him. And so when he loses his job, which is what he's setting himself up for, they'll welcome him in. So what can we learn from this? What can we, like, what, what, Jesus talks about then you can't serve two masters. If your whole goal is to just gain money, uh, then you're losing sight of a lot of stuff. You're losing sight of God. If your whole goal is to amass worldly things and possessions, in fact, the word that's used there, money, you cannot love both God and money. It's not money. It's actually mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N, which basically means worldly things, right? Wealth, whatever that means. Uh, so basically he's saying if you are focused, you can't focus on gaining as much as you can in this world while also being focused on your heavenly kingdom, on your eternal destination, on your connection with God and his people. But then Jesus goes on to say, if you have wealth, do what? Use that to gain favor with other people in the world so that they can hear the gospel, that you have more of a platform, and so that then you have a closer connection to God. In other words, Jesus is saying that God will use any means possible so that people will hear the gospel, so that people will come to know God more. He'll use even something that we see in a different part of scripture, reference the love of money is the root of all evil. Not just money, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so what he's saying is, I'll use this. If you have worldly wealth, I can use that to get more people to understand the gospel. So God is using all means so that people hear the hope found in Jesus Christ. Keep that in your mind as we move on <laughs> to the epistle. Now, when it comes to the epistles, it's a term meaning letters. I've hopefully over the past month and a half, two months taught you one of the things you should do whenever you're looking at an epistle is look at the context, specifically the context of who's receiving this letter, right? It's a letter. It's not just something that was gone and posted on a church door or something. This is a letter sent to somebody. In the case uh, of Corinthians, it was sent to uh, the group in Corinth, right? But in the case of Timothy, it's sent to Timothy. So keep that in mind, that this, the context. We're going to get dive into that. I also, before I want to go any further, sections 11 through 15, verses 11 through 15, one of the most controversial sections of Scripture. And unfortunately, this particular section of Scripture has been used to justify terrible attitudes, has been used to justify misogyny and looking down on women for far too long, just like other sections of Scripture have been used to justify things. And when you pick and choose certain things, like you're at a buffet and say, I want this little bit, I want this little bit, you can use that in a way to, quite frankly, be evil in this world. And so as I go forward, I want to say everything that I'm saying here is, is true, and I'm going to avoid as much editorializing as possible. Also keep in mind that this particular section, um, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, of which Christ Memorial is part of, uh, this is one of the key scriptures that the LCMS uses towards saying that women can't be pastors. So as we go forward, just kind of keep that in your mind. So okay, what's our context? What are we talking about here? This is a Paul to Timothy, right? Timothy was really one of his closest, you could almost say disciples, one of his closest apprentices who were learning underneath Paul. Um, he, Timothy was a younger man, though <laughs> 
We always hear when it says later on in 1 Timothy, don't let them look down on you because you're young. We expect like a teenager, right? Uh, most likely at this point, Paul is late 20s. Uh, he would have been around 21 when they began their, their journey around Asia Minor. So he's not all that young, especially within the context of things, but apparently he had an issue with that. Um, Timothy is placed in Ephesus. Ephesus is, is a main hub in what's called Asia Minor, right? And it's a very significant city. One of the main features of Ephesus is the Temple to Artemis. Uh, it's there in the middle of the city. It really is the hub of their finance, the hub of their culture, to the point where in Acts chapter 19, when Paul visits Ephesus, he begins preaching um, that God, Jesus is the one true God preaching about the Trinity, preaching against false gods and false teachings, and the silversmiths rise up and they're like, hold, up, 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 up. hold on, buddy, because that's kind of our livelihood you're talking about there. Like, we need that temple of Artemis because people come to us to buy the idols for that temple. And it actually gets so bad that a literal riot forms up and people are walking through the streets shouting, praise Artemis of Ephesus. This is the culture that Timothy is placed in. Now, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the hunt. In Roman terms, she was Diana, um, but the Greek goddess of the hunt. What's interesting is in Ephesus, she takes on a different form. They speculate that she was combined with another ancient god of the area um, and that she looks different. And all the idols they can find of Artemis of Ephesus, she looks different than elsewhere in the world. In, in Ephesus... She's covered in breasts. And what that means is she also was the goddess of fertility, essentially the goddess of, you could kind of say motherhood, which is strange because Artemis in Greek tradition was a virgin, um, but she, she's basically seen as like the matron saint of the area. And in fact, Ephesus, because of this, was largely becoming a matriarchal society. Uh, because Artemis was so powerful and was this female uh, fertility goddess, there was a whole team of female priestesses who were not only part of that temple, but they were within society. Not unlike how the Pharisees were part of the temple, part of the religious tradition, but also had become powerful within the community, within society. So here's Timothy walking into this situation where it's a matriarchal society, where there are these priestesses, where they're so passionate about Artemis that they, they see her as central to the town. It's almost like, um, like the town of Green Bay and the Packers, like they're just kind of synonymous, where they kind of, you take the Packers away and Green Bay is going to fall apart. Um, same kind of vibe, right? In fact, the Temple of Artemis was once considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And so this is the hub, and this is what Timothy is walking into. And so what Paul is talking about in all of 1 Timothy 1 is false teachings. Apparently, there's a lot of false teaching going on where they're fighting against Timothy, where, where they're looking down on him because he's young, where they're trying to interrupt him. This particular section that we're looking at is about order and worship, making sure that, that things are going well when it comes to worship. So when you look at this particular section, 11 through 15, where he says, I do not permit women to speak, that they should learn in silence. Pause on that. The idea of a woman learning in silence. We, in our modern age, hear that, and what do we focus on? The silence part, right? They should learn quietly. Keep your yap shut, ladies. But in fact, what they would have focused on is the learning part. Because for Israelites, women weren't really taught. They were kind of pushed to the side. And so he's saying, I want them to learn, just they have to do so quietly. Why would he want them to be quiet? Because so many of them came from the tradition 
of Artemis. So many of them had understanding of what religion was and what faith was from this false god, and they were trying to incorporate that. You'd already seen that they had taken an old religion and incorporated Artemis into it. They're probably trying to do this. This is a bit of an assumption, but they're probably trying to do this when it comes to Christ, trying to meld together these gods, right? And so he tells them that they should learn in silence. He then goes on to say, I don't permit a woman to have authority over man. Some scholars have speculated when it says a woman, that that's actually just talking about Artemis, that he's being a little sassy because she was a woman, right? I don't permit Artemis to have authority over Jesus because earlier, what did he call Jesus? Jesus Christ, the man. So is he perhaps doing a little play on words? We don't know. We don't have the apostle Paul with us right now. We wish we did. So he's going through this whole thing and he's telling them, um, I don't permit women to have authority. Oh, that's an interesting word. And unfortunately we are limited from our English understanding, the English language, because the word that's used for authority there isn't the usual word for authority. The word that he uses is authentane, but the actual word that is frequently used for authority, in fact, every other time in scripture that the word authority appears, it's exousia. So what does authentane mean? Why did Paul choose that in this particular moment? Authentane is a much more violent form. It's actually used almost metaphorically for murder. Essentially, to use our kind of modern language, it'd be usurping. I don't permit a woman to violently take over authority from a man. Again, is he talking about Artemis? Is he talking about these priestesses? Is he just talking about the women in the area who perhaps hadn't had this education? He's wanting them to learn, and they're trying to fight against Timothy. They're standing up in church. Who knows, right? We can only go on what we have here, but we have to look at the context. Now, if we go back, we see then that, that he starts referencing Adam and Eve, and this is fascinating. Um, the LCMS uses the fact that he references Adam and Eve to pull it out of context, right? Because this is creation. This applies to all people. And then they say because the, that it references Adam and Eve, it applies to us even today. Um, and, and that's referencing back to Genesis chapter 3. It says that Adam was created first. Again, possibly a response to Artemis, who the myth had begun that she was there, part of creation, that the world, some say the world was born from her in this weird amalgamation myth that they had created in this, this city. So perhaps it's a reference to that. Um, it then says that Eve was deceived, not Adam. But that's fascinating because the apostle Paul elsewhere 100% puts the blame on Adam. In Romans chapter 5, he says, for sin entered this world through one man, right? So why all of a sudden is he shifting it to Eve? Maybe he's trying to make a point about the matriarchal society rising up against Timothy. And he's saying, hey guys, they're not perfect. They're not better than you. They are the same kind of sinner like we are, everybody. I also love the fact, and this is something that I've wrestled with and really hadn't tackled and gotten into until working on this sermon. In Romans 3, when God is issuing the curse or stating the curse after the sin, he's talking to, to Satan, he's talking to Eve, he's talking to Adam. To Eve, he says, you will long after your husband and he will dominate you. In our modern sense, we hear that longing after husband and we insert kind of a, a lust mindset, but that's not what it actually means. It's talking about longing for his authority and he's going to dominate you. Essentially, these gender battles that we constantly are battling in marriage and in society, all these things, right? Uh, this is a result of sin. 
And it's fascinating to me because this is not prescriptive. This isn't saying, God saying this is how it should be. This is descriptive. This is God saying this is how it will be. There's going to be battles between man and woman, between wife and husband. There's going to be battles over authority. Interesting. So with all this said, let me say this. It's easy to hear this, easy to look at this, and easy when talking about anything about, about how women perhaps are mistreated to say, oh, well, he's just saying that men are slobs and they're toxic masculinity. There is nothing wrong with being a man. And if you include our gospel reading, there's nothing wrong with being an ambitious and successful man. There isn't. In the same way, there is nothing wrong with being an ambitious and successful woman either. And unfortunately, sometimes we treat women that way. There is something wrong, however, when you let that ambition and success, regardless of your gender, take hold in front of Christ. When you are in the case of Ephesus, you're a woman who says, I was powerful in the church of Artemis. I deserve to be powerful here. I'm going to rise up and I'm going to speak my mind. Or in the case of the gospel reading, if you're a successful and ambitious man and you say, listen, the most important thing is that I'm making money. The most important thing is that I'm looking out for number one. That's when we enter into an issue. As is the case with all things in the world, we exist in tension, trying to balance these things, trying to balance out the idea of gender roles, trying to balance out the idea of equality, trying to balance out the fact that all belong in the church. Because that's our takeaway. That's what we should learn from these two very confusing and frustrating bits of scripture, is right there at the end, one of the phrases that could be the most controversial, if you don't understand it, where it says, the woman will be saved through what? Childbearing. See, a lot of people interpret this in the way that they want to interpret it. To say, well, see, the purpose of a woman is just to have kids. The purpose of a mom is to be a mother, to, to be barefoot, walking around the kitchen, making dinner for me or husband. But that is not what that means, especially when you look, and the Apostle Paul elsewhere is saying, listen, if you can be single, be single. That seems to fly in the face of this idea that salvation comes through childbearing. But even more than that, salvation comes through childbearing. And we interpret that to mean that for a woman that they're just walking wombs set to multiply the world? No, no, salvation comes through Christ alone. Paul is very clear about this elsewhere. He talks about how we are saved by grace through faith, that we are saved in Christ alone. So what does it mean that women are saved through childbearing? Maybe if we change it through the birth of a child. When suddenly we look back to Genesis 3, which is what he's referencing, where he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and her offspring. I will put this battle, this fight between you and the offspring, the child of the woman, which is... Christ. You will strike his heel. He won't get out of this unscathed, but he will crush your head. My friends, we are saved through the birth of a child, and that child is Christ. That child is Jesus of Nazareth. See, we live in this tension in the world where, where there are this pull, where we have to be in the world. We have to be part of the community. We have to recognize that we belong to the norms of the world, but at the same time, we're not of the world. At the same time, we're looking for the release of that tension. The world tells you your worth comes from having your status, having your wealth. Your world tells you from being the best mom you can be, from being a mom, from being a good wife, a good husband, from having the right bank account. The world tells you all of this, but Christ says, no, no, no. It's all from the birth of a child, and that is Jesus. 
That's it. That's where your worth comes from because I, God, say that you have worth. One day, because of that birth, because of that life, because of that sacrifice, praise God, we'll be free of this tension. And one day we'll be face to face with God himself. We'll be able to look at him and ask him, God, what the heaven did that all mean? <laughs> why, were we so, why weren't you a little more clear when you were talking through Paul here? Why weren't you a little more clear in this parable? I've been confused my entire life because of this. Until then we live in this tension, balancing being in the world but not of the world. Balancing trying to have this success and ambition, trying to work according to the traditions of man, but at the same time, eschewing those traditions of man and following the tradition of God. Pursuing what Jesus shows us every single day. Listen, if what we learn from the gospel reading is that God can use all things to spread the hope of the gospel, you think he's going to exclude half the population? God can speak through you. God does speak through you, man or woman, ambitious or otherwise, young or old. He can speak through you. He can use your life as a testimony. It doesn't matter how successful you are because look at the people that Jesus rose up. There was the least of them. Those were the ones that did the miraculous, amazing things that changed the world. God can use you to proclaim powerful things because God loves you. And nothing's going to change that. Not what the world views you, not, not the way they judge you, not the way they tell you you're not good enough. In Christ, you are made good enough. And so I pray that we're able to seek him, that we're able to know him more, that we're able to make our identity as children of God. And then once we grab hold of that, once that becomes part of us, that we can then share it in the way that God shows us, that we can use the gifts that God has given us to reach out to people, that we can use the gift of our life, of our story, of our testimony, even with all the mistakes and the pain, we can use that so that others may hear the hope of the gospel. My friends, we are saved through the birth of a child. That child came for us in love. He modeled that love. And then in love, he went to the cross to set us free. Praise God, and I can't wait for that tension to be dissolved. Amen? Amen.